Now, we've been in a series called uh, Authentic Faith in an Artificial World. And uh, what we've been looking at is really just kind of this question, how can we live out genuine faith? How can we be authentic in our faith and grow in our faith in a world where life is pushing us increasingly toward artificiality more than it is toward authenticity. And, you know, part of that is the advent of technology. Things are becoming more automated. AI is becoming an increasingly prevalent part of our lives. You know, the things that I feel like um, back in like 2008 when uh, Iron Man, the first Iron Man came out, there were these things, you know, and uh, there were all these kind of screens and, you know, Tony Stark is talking to Jarvis and he's like doing these, you know, Jarvis is talking back. And that kind of stuff seemed like crazy. That kind of stuff seemed impossible. And honestly, when you think about the way that our lives are now, they're not that far from that kind of technology. We talk to things in our homes, you know, they control our lights, they control our the temperatures in our homes, Cars can drive themselves. Things, life is becoming more and more automated. The advent of social media lends to, you know, with this technology, lends to things being kind of, you know, out of our hands. Like, almost like we don't connect on a, on a personal level anymore. Or at least it seems like society is pushing us away from that. And um, we're actually going to conclude this series today uh, talking about the idea of loving your neighbor. You know, how can we just love person to person in a world like this? And one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this uh, to close up this series is because there's so many big things happening in the world right now, societally. Right. I don't know if you guys have checked kind of what's going on with the coronavirus just to kind of give you an update. It's at like eleven and a half million cases worldwide now. We're approaching three million in the U.S. alone. And, you know, that's kind of been going on for months. It's looming in the back of our minds. There's injustice happening in the world. There are still protests going on. People are becoming increasingly aware of these things. The economy, there's poverty. There's even, I mean, I saw a friend post um, who's in China. There's severe floods kind of going on in Wuhan right now. And when all these crazy things are happening in the world, when there are these big things happening in the world, a lot of times it feels like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what can I do right now to contribute to, to help, to help anybody? And oftentimes when the, the, these big kind of topics and conversations come up, I am drawn back to the passage that we are going to look at today, uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37. What can we do? And this is really kind of a going from the macro ideas to just the micro. We just want to talk about what can I do? What can we do right now to help people? you know, to help the people around us. How can we do that? How can we step into that? And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Luke, Luke chapter 10. 
We're going to start in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And uh, we'll read, you know, we'll read kind of this, this whole section all the way through verse. Well, actually, we'll take it piece by piece. Luke 10, 25 through 28 here first. And this is God's word. It's right there up on your screen. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So, um, you know, we'll kind of just go through the text here and then just to give you an idea of what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of go through the text. We'll have a, a point, a big point, and then we'll look at some application. And so, you know, as we look at this text, what we find is there's this lawyer, this um, law expert. And what this would be is uh, a, a lawyer in the Bible in Jesus's time would not be an expert in civil law per se, but an expert in biblical law. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus and wants to test Jesus and says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what he expects is for Jesus to actually not point to the law because it seems like Jesus doesn't really care about the law because Jesus is hanging out with, you know, quote unquote sinners because he is hanging out with the disreputable people of society. And this lawyer expects Jesus to say something like, ah, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how you live. God doesn't care about that. God accepts everyone. And so this lawyer sets this trap for Jesus because he wants to trip him up. He's an expert in the law. He thinks Jesus is going to make some kind of legal mistake here. Now, obviously, Jesus does care about the law. Uh, the law reveals God, what God does care about, and how people are supposed to live. And the, God, the law reveals sinners, reveals sin. And so Jesus kind of answers in this way. He points him back to the law. You know, and what this lawyer doesn't realize is you can't trap Jesus. Right? I don't know why, but I always think about when I think about these people trying to trap Jesus because this is what happens in the Bible all the time. People are coming and they're trying to trap Jesus in this way. I always think about um, the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. I don't know if you guys remember this. This is so old. You know, and I, I think I've used this analogy before. But, you know, uh, like, do you guys remember Jurassic Park, uh, the original one where that hunter goes out and he's, he's trying to get the Velociraptor? That's like this lawyer here, right? He's going out and he's, he's trying to get the raptor and he's like tracking the raptor. And he goes into the jungle tracking the raptor. And right when he's about, he's got that big like hunting gun. And right when he's about to get the raptor, he like looks over to his side. And then the other raptor's tracking him. Like, that's Jesus, right? Jesus, you think you're hunting Jesus. You think you're trapping Jesus, but Jesus is actually trapping you. So Jesus, he's got his own trap here, so to speak. Jesus doesn't really, I mean, I don't know. Is it weird that I compare Jesus to a velociraptor? You know, um, whatever, right? So to speak, metaphorically speaking, right? So Jesus responds to the lawyer. What's in the law? How do you read it? The, law, the lawyer summarizes the law by looking at Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus uh, 19, 18, essentially saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. And Jesus himself has said these things. Jesus actually commends the lawyer, and he says, do this and you will live. He's like, yeah, you know, good answer. Do this and you'll live. Now, why doesn't Jesus say, because that's kind of a weird answer for Jesus, right? This guy says, okay, here's what the law says. Love the lawyer of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, instead of saying something like, believe in me, right? Instead of when he says, you know, what, how can I inherit eternal life? What's the way? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Instead of saying, believe in me and you'll live, you know, I'm the Messiah. Like instead of having these interactions, because it seems like he does have these interactions with certain people. Remember like the, the woman at the well in John 4? Or even kind of Nicodemus, like he has these conversations with people sometimes, and it seems like he does point to himself. He does point to the idea that there is this need for heart renewal, but he doesn't do that here. He points this man to the law. Why does he do that? Now, there is a reason, and hopefully we'll see it as we read on. Now, let's read on verse 29. It says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, and Jesus replied, so, so he, he already answered his own question, kind of, right? Jesus directed the question back to him. He answered it. And then it says, he desiring to just, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify his question, essentially. It says, who's my neighbor? And then verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, when the man says desiring, you know, when the Bible says desiring to justify himself, this man asked this question, who's my neighbor then? Right? Who is my neighbor? That question reveals the mentality of this man, this lawyer, that he is completely lost, right? Because he quickly glosses over, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, like that alone should cut to the heart. Do you, you, do you know what I'm saying? Like that alone, if you even just take the first and greatest commandment, like if you just take that alone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that was posted up in your house, if you, you know, you, I don't know, you wrote it on, you did the whole kind of fancy writing, right? Like calligraphy or whatever, and you write it and you post it up on your wall. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every day looking at that 
would be enough to cut to the heart every day. Because you would ask yourself, do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we even do that with one of those things? Like, do you ever even ask yourself that? Do I love God with all my mind? All my mind, is all of my mind dedicated to loving God, to knowing and understanding God, to reading the scriptures, to reading the word, to meditating on it, to memorizing it, committing it to my mind and devoting my mind to study and learn and get deep into it and to read books that interpret the scriptures and then to take classes to learn how to interpret the books that interpret the scripture, like to really have this understanding. Do I love God with all my mind? Do I love God with all my strength? Right? Do I devote myself to be, to, to have, even physically, right, to wake up at a certain time so that I can devote myself to God, to keep myself in a certain shape, right, so that I can devote myself to God and to doing God's will. Like, do we even do one of those? Right? Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? But the crazy thing is, this lawyer quickly glosses over that as if to say, well, I already got that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He thinks that because he knows the answer, there's nothing more to be done there. That's too elementary. That's too easy for him. That's level one stuff. Why doesn't Jesus say, believe in me and you'll live? Why does he point him back to the law? Because those other people, like the, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus asking for this questions. He's looking for answers. The woman at the well, Jesus quickly reveals her heart. Right? Jesus is doing the same here, except this lawyer doesn't think he needs any kind of saving. He thinks, I already have it figured out. I already know all the answers. Oh, love the Lord your God. It's so easy. That's easy stuff, Jesus. Let's have a debate. Let's talk about the minutia of the law. Because I'm on another level than that, God. Like, he's, he's already thinking. Like, his attitude before God, not that he thinks Jesus is God, but before God himself, is he's just thinking, oh, this is so basic. So instead of saying to this man, believe in me and you'll live, because that will be wasted on this man. Good news will be wasted on this man because he doesn't think he needs good news. He doesn't recognize the bad news. So instead he tells this story. Right? He puts this story on a particularly dangerous stretch of road. It was called uh, the Pass of Adumim or the Pass of Blood. So it was 17 miles of hilly road from Jerusalem to Jericho. People were often robbed on this road by bandits. A man apparently has fallen upon bandits. He is kind of broken, beaten on the side of the road. A priest comes, a religious leader, very high up. 
passes by on the other side. Now, sometimes people speculate, okay, well, what was the priest thinking? You know, maybe it was because he was in a rush. Maybe it was because he was busy. Maybe it was because he didn't want to defile himself. Actually, one pastor I listened to on this text, he had, he pointed out that, um, the priest probably, well, the priest didn't think any of those things because the priest didn't exist. This is a character and a story that Jesus is telling. What does it matter what the guy's thinking? Uh, his intentions actually don't matter. Jesus' intentions in telling the story are what matter. And the bottom line is the priest did not prove himself to love God or to love people because when he saw somebody in need right in front of him, he passed by on the other side of the road instead of helping and then a Levite, somebody who assists in the temple, assistant to the pastor, so to speak, uh, taking care of temple facilities and things like that, also would be a religious kind of part of the upper religious class. We would expect him to come and help. He doesn't help. Same thing. Proves does not love God and love neighbor. Now, the third person who comes is a Samaritan. Now, that's a twist which we'll get into a little bit later, but Samaritans were loathed by Jews. They were hated by Jews. And this Samaritan is the hero of the story, right? Patches him up, puts him on his own animal, takes him to the inn, pays for his stay. You know, it says he gave two denarii. A denarii was a day's wages. It says he gave two denarii. That was actually probably enough to let this guy stay there for about two months. That's lavish love. Right, And that is the point that this is lavish love for a complete stranger. In fact, somebody who would have probably considered him an enemy. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This Samaritan proves himself to be a neighbor. Right, If we read the end of the story, let's look at the end of the story here. Verse 36, it says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, Jesus, the reason Jesus tells the story is to dismantle this lawyer's self-righteous view. Here's what's at the heart of the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? And who's my neighbor? It is who is worthy of my love? Who deserves my love? Who's worthy of my sacrificial efforts? Who's worthy of my service and generosity? That question betrays this man's heart. It's the wrong question, and Jesus, in fact, doesn't even answer it. Because our question shouldn't be, who's my neighbor? It should be, how can I be a good neighbor? The world out there is constantly driving us into the question, who's my neighbor? Who deserves my love? Who deserves my attention? Who deserves my money? Who deserves my compassion? Who deserves the benefit of the doubt? Do white people? Do black people? Do Asian people? Do criminals? Do police officers? Does my family? Do my parents? Do my in-laws? Does my church? Which people at my church? 
Do my neighbors, my actual literal neighbors, the people who live around me, does the man in need on the street, who deserves my love? Who has proven themselves worthy of my affection and my service and my sacrifice? And how do I calculate that? And Jesus says, that question betrays your heart. It betrays whether or not you recognize that you need him. This question betrays the lawyer. Now we, by nature, we people, we tend to avoid empathy. We don't, we don't like uh, to be empathetic. There was a 2019 study in the American Psychological Association, or done by the American Psychological Association, and uh, what they said was, we saw a strong preference to avoid empathy even when someone else was expressing joy. So they did this experiment where participants would kind of choose uh, what they wanted to experience, and they typically would avoid anything that would um, require empathy, even if it was like a positive uh, emotion. They didn't want to empathize with people. Uh, they showed a strong preference for kind of anything that uh, a certain, like they had these decks of cards where they would choose certain things and they would always choose from the deck or they would often choose from the deck that did not require empathy because it, they found that empathy is mentally demanding, right? And it's one of the things like uh, we do in, you know, when I do premarital counseling for um, a couple, it's one of the things we do kind of this exercise in empathy, and uh, one of the things we do is all you have to do is listen to somebody. You listen to your partner, uh, tell you something about how they feel. And all you have to do is repeat it back exactly. So somebody says, you know, it's about some kind of conflict, right? And they say, well, I felt sad, you know, when you came late or something like that, right? Just, just something really basic like that. And all you have to do is repeat it back exactly the way that you heard it, right? So all you have to do is say, um, okay, what I'm hearing is you felt sad when I arrived late or something like that, right? And what often happens though, and I'm, I'm the same way, I'm like this exactly, is that we don't repeat it back exactly. We insert our own interpretation of events. We insert our own kind of things in in there. We reinterpret what's being said from our own perspective. Do you ever do that? Like somebody tells you something, what they're feeling, but then you reinterpret it. Or you think somebody tells you like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling really sad or I'm feeling really lonely. You know, they're trying to explain something to you. And what you think about is, or something bad that happened at work. Oh, this happened. My boss said this to me, made me feel a certain way. And what you think about is not what this person in front of you is going through. What you think about is, what would I do if I were in that situation? Oftentimes, we, this happens in marriages often. And you just say something like, well, why didn't you just do this? You should have just said that. I am certainly guilty of this. I know I'm not naturally an empathetic person. Some of you are. I'm not. It requires all of my mental energy. Like I have to be aware of it or I'm not going to do it. I have to be intentional about it or it's not going to happen. 
I know that about myself and I fail at this all the time because I'm not being intentional about it. But do you realize how difficult it is to love your neighbor as yourself? This is like crazy. <laughs> you know, when you're hungry, what do you do? You eat, right? When you're tired, what do you do? You sleep. When you want something, what do you do? You buy it. Like if you can afford it. Sometimes when you can't afford it. To think that way about another person, that seems impossible. And yet, What's being stated here, what Jesus is saying here, is that that's kind of what it means. That's, that's where he sets the bar, right? Like, that's what he's saying. And what he's trying to reveal about this guy is that he's actually trying to trust in the law for his salvation. And what's even more crazy about it is he thinks he's doing a good job. He's going to the law for salvation to love, which states, if you want to be saved by the law, you got to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. And yet somehow this guy thinks he's actually close. He thinks, oh, I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm basically doing that. Maybe we should just talk about what's a neighbor. Now, th this passage has been um, kind of crazily interpreted um, in, in, in different ways. One of the kind of old interpretations according to Origen, um, who's this like old theologian dude but uh, basically he had this allegorical interpretation he said in this story the man is adam jerusalem is paradise jericho is the world the robbers are hostile powers demonic forces the priest is the law the levite is the prophets the samaritan is christ the wounds are disobedience the animal is the lord's body the inn is the church and the samaritan's return is the second coming Which in one sense you read it and you're like, oh, that sounds kind of cool, right? It's like, oh, it's, it's symbolic and everything means something. And oftentimes that's the kind of stuff that we want when we go to the Bible instead of the obvious truth, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the, the two great commands here. And then there's this more modern interpretation uh, having to do with social justice Um, who's uh, one of the big proponents of this, Jim Wallace, he says this. He says, the Good Samaritan is a problem. It seems to promote short-term aid without addressing long-term justice. For example, what were the social conditions that led the man to abuse the wounded man? And was it, what it, was it a predictable outcome of a deeper social illness? Was the Good Samaritan later inspired to engage the dilemma through advocacy? The Good Samaritan is open-handed, leaving us an assortment of questions in relation to the preservation of social justice. What would happen if the Good Samaritan went down the road daily and began to critique the political and economic agendas of those in power in that area? We need to dig out the root causes of injustice that made the man steal. May we create a world where in 500 years, Sunday school classes are bewildered by this story because violence never happens and good Samaritans are needed no more. 
That's nuts. That is a nuts take on this passage. This passage is used for all kinds of stuff, for all kinds of things, to be one thing, to be another thing. What then is the point of the story? Well, let's go back to the original question, the initiating question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that's not a, that's not a, that's not a unique question. Right? In fact, um, Luke 18, the rich young ruler asked basically the same question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in that passage, as here, Jesus points to the law again. He points to commandments. And at the end of that passage, in Luke 18, 26 to 27, because Jesus says it's harder, you know, it's um, harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And then those who hear it say, who then can be saved? Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Here's Jesus' point for this man, the summary. Here's, here's just, if we have one point from this text, it'll be this. If you're more concerned about who's worthy of being loved then whether or not you're being a loving neighbor, then that reveals a desperate need of Christ and a misunderstanding of the gospel. Like, if you're more concerned in evaluating the deservedness of people than you are in evaluating your love for people, then you're starting in the wrong place. That's what Jesus wants to reveal to this man. It's left open-ended at the end, right? Like, what's going to happen? How is the man going to respond? Now, I'm just going to give a couple application points. Um, kind of application points. I mean, they're points that we can turn into application. Uh, one, loving your neighbor isn't about everyone. It's about you and your neighbor. Loving your neighbor isn't about everyone. It's about you and your neighbor. Now, why do I say that? Because today, everything is becoming about everything, everyone. How can we fix everything for everyone? The truth is, if you focus only on that question, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on that question at all. Okay, should we think about kind of systemic problems and bigger issues and things that need to be changed in society? Absolutely, of course. And if we're not, we should. But sometimes we think so much about the big things. We think so much about the idea that we need to co be compassionate to all people. Like, we need all people to be compassionate to all people. And then we just ignore our neighbor. Like, we think, oh, well, we have to take the gospel to the nations, right? Like, we got to go to this country and that country and because there's so many lost people there. But then our neighbor is lost. And we don't care. Or... We don't know whether our neighbor is lost or not because we don't know them. 
We don't know their name. We don't know their struggles. We don't know anything about them. Loving your neighbor isn't about everyone. It's about you. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, there's a reason he says it like that. Who is your neighbor and how can you love them? Do you know them? Have you spoken to them? Do you care about them? Like, if we feel like these great passion, this great passion for certain causes, but then not for the people who are in our lives, like your friends or the people at your church or people in your family. Like, if we don't feel compassion, if we don't want to give the benefit of the doubt to those people, and yet we feel like, oh, well, but I'm, but I'm being swelled with this great passion I don't really think that that's coming from God. Here's the second thing, and I'll just close with this. Loving your neighbor must be fueled by the compassion you have received in Christ. Loving your neighbor must be fueled by the compassion that you have received in Christ. So if you recognize that your own love is lacking... Right, Much in the way that this lawyer was. The point wasn't, hey, fix the way that you love your neighbor. For the, for the lawyer. The point was, do you recognize, do you recognize what you're really in need of? Because you're trying to go through this self-righteous law route and it's not working. Now the key to the parable is where the lawyer has been placed inside the story. See, a Jew would never identify himself with the Samaritan in the story. When the story is told, so here's the way that the story is supposed to go. The priest comes, right? The priest who is like the super uber religious guy. So the uber religious guy comes and he goes on the other side. He proves himself not to be really like, not to care. And then the Levite comes who's a little step down, right? From the priest. You know, he comes and he also doesn't help. So he's actually, he proves himself not to be, uh, really care. And then the third guy who comes in the story is supposed to be a regular Jewish man. That's who's supposed to come. That's what probably the people are thinking because the regular Jewish man comes and then the moral of the story is anybody can be a hero like this regular Jewish man. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not from a special, he's not from a special line, right? He doesn't have some kind of special calling or anointing. He's just a regular dude, but he's the hero of the story because he actually helps the guy on the road. But when the third person comes and it's a Samaritan, now, the lawyer who's being told this story thinks, well, I'm not a priest and I'm not a Levite, so who am I in the story? Because he would never think, oh, so I'm supposed to be like the Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans more than anyone. Um, they were kind of half Babylonian, half Jewish people, people and, and Jewish people. This is very racist, you know, in fact. And Jewish people considered Samaritans basically, I mean, Jewish people were like supremacists in this sense. You know, they were saying like, we're like kind of the pure line and Samaritans are this kind of half-breed, um, you know, mixed line. And so they had, the Jews had this sense that they were superior to Samaritans. There were all kinds of terrible things that they wrote about Samaritans. Like you should never touch one. You should never sit where they sat. You should never eat where they ate. 
And if Jesus, if Jesus said that the Samaritan was the guy on the road, then everybody would have laughed at him. They would have said, because Jews weren't supposed to help Samaritans. They would have looked down on the Samaritan and they would have said, oh, this Samaritan is, is, he probably deserves what he got. He's the one in the road. And so Jesus doesn't do that. He makes the Samaritan the hero. So then the lawyer would think, who am I in the story? I'm the guy on the road. That's who, like due to the way that the story is set up, that's the only person, that's the only character in the story that the lawyer can now latch on to. He would say there's a guy on the side of the road who's alone, beaten, naked, bleeding to death, and there's someone coming to save him. And the one coming to save him who you think, oh, so I'm supposed to be that person. I'm supposed to be the one that's going to go save people. I'm supposed to be the one that's going to give, you know, this incredible generosity. Jesus is painting this picture of a model of who I'm supposed to be. But when he says it's a Samaritan, the Jew would say, well, that's not me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, don't you get it? You're the one who's on the road. You're the one who's a wreck and hurt and all alone and no one can bear look at. And other people are walking around because they don't want to get close to you. Because they don't want to risk themselves for you. And the one who comes to save you is your enemy. The one who you should hate the most. The one who you look down on. That's the one who risks his life, who tends to your wounds, who picks you up, who carries you, who puts you on his animal, who pays for your stay at the inn, who who charges the rest to his credit and says, I'll be back to pay anything else. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that that's what Jesus is trying to tell this lawyer, but that is the gospel. And it's only as we continuously experience that, the understanding that we are the one on the road, that we can grow in love for others, that we can know the compassion that Jesus gave for us is in fact beyond what the Samaritan man does. Because Jesus doesn't just risk his life on the road. It would be risky for the Samaritan on the road to help this man because the bandits could still be nearby. It could be a trap. And they could, they could get the Samaritan man. But Jesus doesn't just risk his life. His death was assured. He knew for certain that he would die. If you feel naked and broken and hurt and his enemy. He sees you and he has compassion on you and he loves you. Embracing that truth is what frees us from our morality and in fact enables us to actually love this way. To want to love God. Now we're not going to do it perfectly obviously. But to want to increasingly love God. With all our heart, soul, mind and strength. To increasingly love our neighbor. Whoever is around us. 
as ourselves, not to prove something about how righteous we are, not to not be looked down on, but because we know that we, like the man on the road, have been graciously loved, have been compassionately and generously helped and bandaged up and healed and taken to the inn and had all of our debt paid for and even our future secure in Christ. Don't focus on everyone. Focus on your neighbor. And two, just to summarize this point, be desperate for the gospel every day. Because that is what's going to fuel the kind of love that is needed in the world around us right now. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your lavish, overly generous love and compassion. We know that we are not deserving of it. We know, God, in fact, that we get it so kind of twisted sometimes that we think we're relying on the law and we somehow deceive ourselves into thinking we're actually succeeding in fulfilling it and living up to its standards, God. And I pray that, you know, if that's where we would find ourselves, God, if, if we would discover in ourselves that we care more about who is deserving, we care more about evaluating who deserves our love and our generosity and our sacrifice and our service, then we are interested in evaluating whether or not we are being the kind of loving neighbor that you reveal in Scripture, uh, then we pray, God, that you would graciously rebuke us. We pray, God, that you would uh, remind us of the compassion and grace that we have received, that we are in need of every day, and that you would help us to urgently run back to you, God. And as we do every day, God, and I know that, um, you know, for those of us who are, Lord, I really pray that you would continue the work in our hearts, God. Help us to be increasingly uh, compassionate and generous and loving to the people around us who are in our lives, God. Uh, not to prove anything, but because you have already proven everything on our behalf. Uh, we thank you so much, God, for your love, for your grace. And uh, we give you all the glory in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.